Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we're going to be in section 30 through 36 of the Doctrine and Covenants. There's a big pattern here, and there's also a lot of little sub-stories. And so sometimes if you're teaching this, you can kind of get lost in the details and what's important. And I think one of the things Bryce and I want to do with this podcast is help you see that there's so many different ways to teach this, depending on the needs of your family, and even where they are in their lives. If you look only at section 30 through 36, you might say there's limited material here, but they are springboards into some very wonderful conversations, big picture type things that you can have with students this week. So they lead to some tremendous discussion. So Mike and I are going to kind of go off onto a few different tangents, hopefully to help you see that there's a thread that weaves through them that you can tie together. And the irony what Bryce just said is we're going to springboard and go down roads. That's literally what's happening in these sections is these people are being called and they're all going on different roads. And so it's a great metaphor for this whole scripture block. Yeah. So let's start with kind of the big picture of what's going on. Do you remember back in section 28 with the Hiram Page Searstone that Oliver Cowdery was called on a mission to preach to the Lamanites? Now, I'm imagining in my head, like is so common today, that he creates this expectation that, oh, I'm going to go out there and we're going to convert thousands of Lamanites. And everything I'm reading in the Book of Mormon about the Lamanites and blossoming as a rose like we heard in section 10, oh, this is where it all begins. I'm the one that's going to go out and start that whole process. And Oliver creates this massive expectation of what should happen based on his call to the Lamanites. And then a couple sections later, we start adding people. So in section 30, Peter Whitmer is going to add to the list. And then in section 32, we add Parley P. Pratt. Now that is going to be absolutely crucial because Parley P. Pratt, on their way to the Lamanites, so if you think of the early United, the United States, they're in New York, you can't just go straight west because of the big lakes. So you got to go south around the big lakes, which will take you into Ohio. And while they're going through Ohio, Parley P. Pratt calls upon his friend Sidney Rigdon, who was a Campbellite minister in Ohio, who has a very large congregation. And in that whole process of talking to Sidney Rigdon, a good portion of his congregation joins the church, and now we have over a 100 baptism in the Ohio area while they're on their way to the mission to the Lamanites. Now, the mission to the Lamanites never does come to fruition. Mike's going to tell us that whole history about what stopped them, but it doesn't come to fruition. This is fun. Um, Elder Pratt talks about this. And he says, in two or three weeks from our arrival in the neighborhood with the news, we'd baptize 127 souls. And then what's interesting is Joseph Fielding McConkie says they didn't have enough books to give to these people. They all wanted to read the Book of Mormon. And then in Pratt's biography, he says the number did increase to 1,000. So imagine you're a missionary. You're sent to the Lamanites, and you think, okay, we're going to go do all this work. Oh, as a side note, we have a thousand people that we baptize on the way there, right? That's my point. I think one of the things we need to understand that in the gospel, it's quite often the process rather than the product. Let me see if I can introduce that idea by having everyone turn to Doctrine and Covenants section 117. I love Oliver Granger. I can't wait to meet him in the afterlife and shake his hand because he's had a tremendous influence on my life. Oliver Granger had the assignment of trying to sell the First Presidency's land after the church leaves Ohio and goes to Missouri. It's an impossible task because he's never going to get top dollar for their land. Uh, The First Presidency was hated by the people who stayed behind in Ohio. But Oliver Granger is going to kind of take take charge of the properties of the First Presidency in the church. And the Lord says to him in section 117, verses 12 and 13, I remember my servant Oliver Granger. Behold, verily I say unto you that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation. 
Forever and ever, saith the Lord, therefore let him contend earnestly for the redemption of the first presidency of my church, saith the Lord. And when he falls, not if, when he falls, he shall rise again. And then this profound statement, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase. I think the Lord is trying to say the process is oftentimes more valuable than the product. They had their minds on going to the Lamanites and preaching to the Lamanites, and I'm sure they had visions of massive Lamanites joining the church, kind of like they read in the Book of Mormon. I think they probably thought of themselves as Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, and that the Lamanites are going to come join in, in massive numbers. And when that didn't happen, when the product that they were called to produce never happened, the tendency often we have is to consider ourselves a failure. I felt inspired to do this and it never happened. Or the, the, the Lord called me to go to Russia and then the pandemic hit and I ended up and spent my mission in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And now all of a sudden it's like I failed. The product never came to fruition. I never finished what the Lord called me to do. But man, did some wonderful things happen in Pennsylvania. And all along the Lord's trying to say, do you understand that it's not so much the product as it's the process? Even the Joseph Smith translation kind of stands as an example. We don't even own that. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints doesn't even own the Joseph Smith translation. It's in the hands of the disciples of Christ. But that's okay because the most important thing that came out of that was the process of producing it. What Joseph learned in the process is far more valuable than the end product. By the way, two-thirds of the Doctrine and Covenants is going to be given to us while he's in this process of being in the Scriptures from 1830 to 1833. So I see what you're saying with this process. And when you were talking about the missionaries, it reminded me of like the visa waiters. You're called to go, but then you spend six months or three months waiting, and yet there's still work to be done. And you probably know this verse. There's this really cool verse in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord says, oh, by the way, on your journey to so-and-so, don't forget to talk to the people. I, I just think that's important. That's and part that's of it. that's the point is that it's the process. It's, it's what happens along the way. So no, the, the mission to the Lamanites never does come to tremendous fruition. But along the way, what happened in Kirtland, Ohio, was tremendously beneficial for the church. And we're going to see this over and over again. When we're heavily in debt after building the Kirtland Temple, Joseph's going to head to Salem, Massachusetts, looking for gold. And while he's there, the Lord's going to say, hey, you're not going to find the gold you came here for, but you're going to find the gold I wanted you to find. And they found historical records. They, they found people interested in the gospel. And so I would just say to some of you who have had an experience where the product seems to have failed, I didn't baptize very many people in my mission, but the process changed my life. And I will forever be a different person because of what happened in the process. Um, sometimes that could be a marriage where a marriage doesn't work out despite your best efforts. Um, a lot of our listeners have had that experience where they have a child or their marriage didn't work out or maybe a career or a move they felt inspired to move. Um, and we certainly wouldn't look back in the experience and say, well, I ne wish I never would have been married even though this person exercised their agency that hurt me and, and failed that or broke that covenant, and yet the Lord blesses you with these marvelous children. I think that is an application of what we're talking about. And as we judge and value things, we ought not to diminish the experience because the product was less than we had hoped it would be. We really need to look at the process. And say, you know what? What I learned along the way made that whole experience so valuable. You may be inspired by the Lord to do something and feel very strongly that the Lord has called you to do that. But that doesn't happen 
and it doesn't mean you failed. It doesn't mean the Lord didn't inspire you. And it may mean that the process of pursuing that was exactly what the Lord wanted you to experience, not the end product. Isn't it value to have showed the Lord and yourself what kind of person you are, that you were willing to go, that I'm responding to a prompting? Oliver Cowdery doesn't convert thousands of Lamanites, but Oliver Cowdery converts a whole lot of people in Ohio, which will now form as the headquarters of the church in which we will build the first temple. It's really a nucleus to not only build the temple, but we kind of gather this core group of individuals that then go to England, that then come to Nauvoo, and then we have 20,000 members. And so it just keeps growing and growing. And, and Nauvoo is a thriving city. And then I think what would have happened with the Indian mission if it would have been permitted to go? We don't know because it historically it didn't happen. But it but, sure is hard to call it a failure. Correct. Historians look at the mission and they say, okay, if this would have happened, then this would have happened, like counterfactual history. I don't know if culturally white European settlers would have been able to be integrated with the the indigenous Native Americans at the time. But to me, that doesn't matter because that's what the Lord wanted. I think the, the overall cosmic idea of this story of go on this mission to the Lamanites is the Lord wants all of his children to get along. He wants to build a Zion where it doesn't matter about your language or your ethnicity. It's just this kumbaya moment. But I don't think that we were ready. Now, when I say we, we were doing all we could, but governmental agencies wouldn't let us in and they kicked us out essentially. And the Lord allowed them to have agency. He allowed these men to use their agency to not allow us to be successful. But nevertheless, I'm grateful that these sections are in here because we get this notion from God. We're going to tie both pieces of the lost house of Israel. We have the branches and the scattered remnant from Europe that has now come to America, the white European settlers, but also these the descendants of Laman and Lemuel. And God says, no, I want to put them all back together because that's part of the story of the Bible is this fracture that we're going to put back. That's kind of the story of Genesis, right? The house of Israel's fracture, Joseph's in Egypt. But the end of Genesis is the embrace, where Joseph and his brothers come back together. And another meta-narrative of the Old Testament is the breach of Israel. They have this big split. They don't like each other. And over and over again in the prophetic literature, God says, we are going to put it back. And in Isaiah's words, a remnant shall return. And so that's kind of, Bryce, what I see here with this big cosmic story is there's a God in heaven who says, this is the ideal I want to build Zion. I want to put it all back together. And then history just smacks him in the head. Which is interesting because the Lord allows agency. So maybe when the Lord inspires you to do something, it isn't necessarily that you fail if it doesn't happen. But one of the lessons we need to learn is that people are able to choose for themselves and that agency is a factor in the product. But don't lose sight of the fact that the process made it valuable. That's a valuable lesson that I think we all need to learn. When we go to, when Zion's camp marches to Jackson County, they thought the product was put the saints back on their lands, get the saints that have been kicked off their lands to be able to safely return to their land. That's what they expected the mission to be. And then they get to the very end and the Lord sends them home. And they never even got a chance because the real reason the Lord sent them out there seems to have been to test them. And that was the proving ground to choose the quorum of the 12 and the 70. That would have really stretched my faith. I think in some of them really were stretched. But I think the point again is it wasn't the product. It was the process. If you're wondering what verses are we even talking about, that's going to be section 30, verse 5 and 6. In verse 5, it says, I say unto you, Peter, meaning Peter Whitmer Jr., you shall take your journey with your brother Oliver, for the time has come that it is expedient in me. You should open your mouth, declare my my gospel. Skip down to the end of verse 6, build up my church among the Lamanites. So that's the command. And to these people, they know what he's talking about. He's talking about the land west of Jackson County. Peter Whitmer Jr. is 21 years old. John, his brother, is 28, and David is 25 years old. Peter is called to go as a 21-year-old 
and they're going to walk 1,500 miles. By the way, if you look at the date, they're walking in the snow, which just wrap your brain around that. And they're going on this mission, like I said, over 1,500 miles. Now, they're going with another group of, of men. If you go to Section 32, Ziba Peterson is the other missionary. He's 20. Oliver Cowdery is called to go in verse 2 of Section 32. He's 24 at the time. And then a man that we're just now being introduced to him in the Doctrine and Covenants. And his name is Parley P. Pratt. And he has a really rich story. And he's 23 years old. And he's married to a woman who's a widow. And her name is Thankful. And she's 10 years his senior. Ziba and Oliver are single. Parley is married and the question is, okay, you're going to go on a mission. You're going to go walk 1,500 miles in the snow to go teach the Lamanites. Where is Thankful going to go? And Thankful is thankful that she gets to live with Mary Whitmer. Where Mary Whitmer invites Thankful into her home, and those two sisters cultivate a relationship. And that happens all at this time. So there's lots of moving parts in these sections. And I can see as a teacher, it could be almost overwhelming. Like, how do I teach this? And how do I talk about this? And so sometimes putting a, an age on these individuals and trying to get into their world helps us to see, no, these are real people that God's calling to do his work. And I had a thought, Bryce, isn't it interesting that God's going to build his kingdom through the works of these young men and women? The, I mean, they're not seasoned. They're so young, and yet God trusts them. And it's still true today. The whole point is God could use the brilliant experts to do his work, but he says from the very beginning, I am calling upon the weak things of the world. He's going to say that this week in our Come, Follow Me sections. In section 35, verse 13, I call upon the weak things of the world, those who are unlearned and despised to thresh the nations by the power of my spirit. It's always been his way. He could easily call upon the mighty and strong. But there's an element of humility you get by calling upon the weak things of the world. Um, We send out 18-year-old young man, 19-year-old young women. We could send out brilliant men, brilliant women, but we don't send out the experts. We send out the unlearned because God can with them do mighty things. And that's always how God has done his work is with the unlearned, with the despised, with the humble, the people who know they need his help to do it. So let's, Mike, would you just walk us through this whole mission to the Lamanites and maybe a little bit into Kirtland and just kind of the history of what's going on. What happened to the mission to the Lamanites? What happened? Give us a little bit of that history. All right. So Parley P. Pratt, Ziba Peterson, Oliver Cowdery, and Peter Whitmer Jr. They're all young men. They're going to go all the way to an area west of Jackson County. They're going to go to a place called the Indian Territory where a group of Indians have been resettled. There's a tribe of the Delaware that literally just got there like in November previously. And they're going in the winter of 1831, and they're going to arrive right after they get there. And there's a whole political backdrop of a power play between individuals and groups. And there's a little bit of money involved for motives for why people are doing what they're doing. And there's a lot of history swirling around in this land that Parley P. Pratt and his cohorts know nothing about. And I can almost see young 23-year-old Parley P. Pratt when he walks there Uh, This is just me kind of channeling thoughts that he may have had of, okay, this is the Lord's work. We have the Book of Mormon. The Spirit is there. Clearly, he's on fire with the Holy Ghost. And I can almost see Parley P. Pratt thinking to himself, God is going to make this amazing. He's read the Book of Mormon all the way through. I can see him in his heart thinking, I'm going to be like the missionaries in Alma. I'm the modern-day Ammon. Yeah. And I can also see him thinking, God's in charge, and this is going to happen. We're going to build Zion, and bless his heart when he gets there, and he realizes, man, this is not working out. So that's kind of the big picture. Before they get there, though, he does go and and make a beeline right to Kirtland, Ohio, and he meets his good friend, Sidney Rigdon. And Sidney is 38, 37, 38 years old, and Sidney Rigdon is a Campbellite, as we've talked about, a Campbellite minister. And he and his wife, Phoebe, are getting their house built by their congregation. So just put yourself in Sydney's position. 
he has a really good congregation. They're building him a house. He has a really nice living as a minister. And one of his members of his congregation, probably P. Pratt, comes to him and says, hey, the gospel has been restored. Just think about that. And and Sidney Rigdon's like, well, what should I do? And and he says, you know, should I read this? And probably says, yeah, you should you should read this. And he does. He reads it with an open mind. And over the course of time, uh, he does. He joins the church. When he first gets it, this is right from Saints. It says that he was originally a little bit skeptical at first. And then Parley says to him, he says, you brought the truth to me. Now I ask you as a friend, just read this book. Just read it. Don't, you know, don't listen to what other people are saying. Just read it. And then Sidney says, well, you must not argue with me on this subject, but I'll read your book and see what claim it has upon my faith, but I'm not going to contend. And so he does. And Parley asks Sidney Rigdon if he can talk to the congregation. And even though he was a little bit skeptical, Sidney Rigdon says, yeah, you absolutely you can. And so he preaches a sermon. And when he ends it, Sidney Rigdon stands up in front of his congregation and says to them, prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. And eventually he thinks about what this would mean if he accepts the Book of Mormon. To him, it would mean losing his employment. What about my house that they're building? He's got a good congregation. By the way, he and Phoebe, they have six children. And so he's stressed about this. And over time he prays and he comes to know that the Book of Mormon is true and a sense of peace rests over him. And he shares his feelings with his wife. And he says, Phoebe, you've once followed me into poverty. Are you willing to do the same? And she says, I've counted the cost. It is my desire to do the will of God come life or death. And so over the course of time, Sydney and Phoebe join the church. And like we talked about earlier, over a hundred people of their congregation join, but eventually thousands. And Sydney Rigdon is going to be a member of the first presidency of the church. And along with him, there's another fellow by the name of Edward Partridge who lives locally, and he's going to be the first bishop of the church. And so there's a lot of things happening here on their way to this land that they've never been to. And so that's just a brief sketch of Parley and his experience. My take on Parley P. Pratt is he is an integral part of this whole story. The other missionaries are important, but Parley's relationship with Sydney is that tie. And there's a whole backstory to Parley P. Pratt that we're not going to do in this podcast, but there's a wonderful video if you want to watch it. And it's called Herrera Possession. Oh, so good. Didn't you like watching that? Loved it. So I bet you we can, if we, I don't know. We'll try and find a copy that we can link to in our show notes. I bet we can do that. That's a really good, if I had young children, just show that video sometime and say, can you see how Parley P. Pratt was worked on by the spirit of the Lord? And by the way, that's another example of process because he doesn't just get right there. It's kind of, it takes a process of time. Yeah. So just so you know, this week's Come Follow Me, section 35 uh, Sydney and, and Edward Partridge feel like they need to go back to New York and meet Joseph. They're very antsy and anxious to meet the prophet. And wouldn't you be, you know, if you were a minister and you had committed yourself to a life of of Christ and goodness, and then you get news that there's a living prophet on earth, wouldn't you be dying to meet him? So Sydney and Edward decide to head back to New York and meet him for themselves. And section 35 is a revelation that Joseph receives for Sydney, basically telling Sydney, you partner up with Joseph. Sydney's now going to take over the translation of the Bible, the JST. He's Meaning gonna he's going to scribe, right? He's going to scribe for Joseph. He's going to take over the assignment that I think Oliver started, but then Oliver gets called on the mission. 36 is to Edward Partridge. And he does, he, he does go inspect Joseph's land. I find this interesting, but in the historical records, Edward is really successful. He's 37 at the time, and he's a successful hatter, and he knows, I think over course of time, you, you, get a little, you get a little bit older and you start seeing things back then. Well, does the man take care of his farm? What does his fence look like? What do his family say about him? And so he, I think he's going just to use the eyes and his intellect and the things that he knows to be wise as serpents and just go, okay, I've read this book. Who's this guy, Right. And then we get 36. So we're not going to, he's not going to be the bishop until we get to section 41, verse 9 of the Doctrine and Covenants, but just know we're headed that direction. Edward Partridge 
is stellar. Okay, so back to the mission. On their mission to the Lamanites, there's this whole backstory. There's a couple of powerful people that have really maneuvered themselves in the government to control what happens with this land and the Indians. And this is a rough history, but in American history, the American government is displacing tribes. So there's a Delaware tribe that's been displaced and put on this land west of Jackson. And if you look at a map, Delaware is nowhere near Missouri. And the Delaware tribe's not from Missouri. They're from the east, and they've been displaced multiple times, and they finally make their way in November of the previous year to this land. And there's a couple people that are playing a role. One of them, his name is Reverend Isaac McCoy, and he's an ordained Baptist minister. And he is the federal government surveyor and the agent for Indian settlement. And right before Parley and his cohorts get to this area, a group of Methodists get there, and they're trying to do missionary work, and Isaac McCoy doesn't like it, and he's trying to get them off the land. And there's another man by the name of Richard Cummins, and he's a governmental agent. And both of these men work to stop the work of the missionaries in this land. I think on one hand, they do have pure motives. They want to help these natives to to be successful. In fact, Reverend Isaac McCoy, he actually wants to establish an amalgamation. He wants to establish a group of Indian tribes that are all different and make its own Indian nation. And he writes about this where he says, I don't want to have the white man influencing them. I want them to remain pure. So I think sometimes it may be his motives are pure. Like I said, I don't know. But in the 1829 treaties that the government signed with the Indians, they agreed that provision would be made in what's called the Indian Removal Act to induce the providing of schools for Indian children. And so in the treaty, there's money, about $5,000 in an annuity to provide for a grist and sawmill and build schools for these tribes. And the funding was significant incentive to really drive ministers and preachers of Christianity west to these lands to be the first ones there to build the school to get the money. Now, I don't see this in the writings of Parley P. Pratt. When I read Parley P. Pratt, he's not motivated, oh my gosh, I got to go get $5,000. Parley P. Pratt's all about the Book of Mormon's true. We got to build Zion. That's their motivation. They're going to walk 1,500 miles in the snow, and I don't think he he gives two licks about $5,000, but I think that there are some groups there that do. And so because of this, I think that is really the reason why Cummins kicks him off. Now, quick story. Richard Cummins goes to these guys and he says, listen, if you guys don't get off this land, I'm going to get you all arrested. So Oliver Cowdery writes to his supervisor and we put it in the show notes and you can read it. He writes him this letter and he says, hey, we're doing all the things legally we're supposed to be doing. Can we teach these guys? And he never gets a response. And so over a course of time, and it takes a few months, the letter that Oliver writes is in February. Um, Because he doesn't get a response, the mission kind of fizzles out. And what I mean by that is, well, they can't go. If they do, they'll be arrested. The Delaware tribes heard him preach, and there's some interest there, we think, according to historical sources. But just to the east of where they are, their success. People are listening. People are being people are being converted. And one of them is a fellow by the name of Joshua Lewis. And in his house, we're going to have these meetings, the very first meetings in the church in Missouri. And then there's a county just east of them called Lafayette County. And in that area, other people are starting to join the church. These four missionaries want to build Zion. They're called to go to the Indians. They go there. The government kicks them out. God lets agency prevail. But they don't sit and say, well, I guess I'm not going to do anything. They keep working. And I have a son on a mission right now. And with COVID restriction. How easy is that to just say, well, I can't door to door. I can't proselyte like I normally do. So the natural man probably kicks in and says, well, then just quit. And yet the spirit of missionary work is that, no, we'll find another way. If we can't knock on doors, let's use Facebook. If we can't do that, we'll do something else. And I think these guys ignite a fire that is still a tradition today in that we will find a way. However, we need to explore, and that's what I love about modern-day missionaries. And those of you who are on missions, who are listening to this podcast, we commend all of you. If it didn't turn out the way you expected, if the product wasn't what you wanted— 
bless your souls for finding another process and finding another way and making success along the way. I think that legacy begins with this mission to the Lamanites is, oh, well, we were called to go there. We couldn't do that. So we did all of this on the way and on the way back. Even in the snow, like think about walking 1500 miles in the snow. I don't know. But what if it was spring? Would they have done this? In other words, they knock on people's doors because it's so cold and those people join the church. So sometimes even the snow in God's big, big picture can be your friend. So I mentioned Joshua Lewis. He's married to this gal named Margaret Kelsey. So Joshua and Margaret have this house that's kind of in this crossroads between all the rivers there, just west of Independence. And that becomes like a hub of church activity. And I don't think they would have knocked on their door if it wasn't freezing. I just think that's important to yeah. talk about. And and that's how the Lord operates. He called them to go preach to the Lamanites, but all along the way, he opens doors that in the process might bring greater blessings than the anticipated blessing of preaching to the Lamanites would have been. It's this big messy We just shoot. need to trust Heavenly Father and enjoy the process of obeying him. Yeah. Great piece of church history here. I, I love how this kicks off missionary work by saying, hey, if it's cold, stop at every door you can to warm up. And while you're there, tell them about the gospel and look how many people open their doors and welcome them in. I love what probably B. Pratt says where he says that the, the snow didn't melt. He's like, we traveled for days without fire, wading in snow to our knees. And then he says, we carried on our backs our changes of clothing, our books, and cornbread and pork. We often ate frozen bread and pork by the way, and the bread would be so frozen that we couldn't even bite it with our teeth. We couldn't even penetrate the crust. And that's on page 40 of his autobiography. And nowhere in his journal is he's like, is he thinking, I can't wait to go get $5,000. Here's the thing. Parley P. Pratt had a very successful farm. He leaves everything because of the spirit that burns in his heart. And that is a story that I read throughout these sections is that motivation. It's beautiful. It's also messy, though. It is. But with that history in our background, let's walk through each of these six sections in this week's Come Follow Me and pull out some of the wonderful nuggets in each one of them. Let me start with section 30. It's to the Whitmer brothers. It's broken into three pieces. Originally, it was three different sections, and now it's one. But it's the three Whitmer brothers. It's David, Peter, and John. And they're all called as missionary works, even though Peter's the only one that will go on the mission to the Lamanites. But there's a word the Lord uses repeatedly in this section and throughout the whole Doctrine and Covenants. This is a theme that flows throughout the Restoration and into the modern church today, and that is the Lord says, don't fear man more than you fear God. To David Whitmer, he says, you have feared man and have not relied on me for strength. Now, this isn't, oh, I'm afraid of spiders, as much as it's respect and seeking their praise and their applause and wanting their honor versus God's honor. Jesus will say to the Jews in the New Testament, how can ye believe who receive honor one from another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? And the idea is that fearing man is the desire to please man. It's the desire to get their praise and their honor and wanting that more than God. So the Lord says to David Whitmer, your mind has been on the things of the earth more than on the things of me, your maker. Now, following that theme throughout the whole Doctrine and Covenants, look at all the things that we lose out on if we're afraid. Joseph Smith lost the manuscript, and the Lord says, you feared men more than God. The fear of men, the desire to please human beings— more than the desire to please God, has cost us a big chunk of the Book of Mormon. Oliver Cowdery was told the reason he couldn't translate the Book of Mormon is because he feared. It cost Oliver Cowdery a tremendous experience in translating the Book of Mormon. And that idea is going to flow throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. Turn to section 40 briefly. Speaking of James Colville, the Lord says in verse 1, the heart of my servant James Colville was right before me. It started out right. But look at verse 2. 
he received the word with gladness, but straightway Satan tempted him, and the fear of persecution and the cares of the world caused him to reject the word. Sometimes the fear of what other people are going to do, how they're going to react to my faith, causes us to walk away from the blessings of the gospel and to leave it. Um, The next one, take a look at section 60, Doctrine and Covenants. You're going to see this again. Speaking of several missionaries returning back from Jackson County, He says in verse 2, But with some I am not well pleased, for they will not open their mouths, but they hide the talent which I have given unto them because of the fear of man. Woe unto such, for mine anger is kindled against them. And it shall come to pass that if they're not more faithful, it shall be taken away even that which they have. If we care more about what the world thinks of us, if we seek their praise and their honor and their glory more than we seek the glory of God, it may cost us the things that we have been given. There's an interesting one. It jumped to section 67. This one sometimes pains me to read. This is the gathering of the conference that's going to lead to the publication of the Doctrine and Covenants. It's the questions asked at this conference that now result in section one and printing the Doctrine and Covenants. But the Lord says to them in advance, verse three, section 67, verse three, ye have endeavored to believe that ye should receive the blessing which was offered unto you. But behold, verily I say unto you, there were fears in your hearts. And verily, this is the reason that ye did not receive them. Now, that's kind of a painful lesson. How many blessings in our life have been lost because of fears in our hearts? How many opportunities in your life have you walked away from out of fear of rejection or fear of being mocked or made fun of? That's a painful verse, but it's one that causes a lot of self-reflecting. Ye endeavored to believe that ye should receive the blessing which was offered unto you. But behold, verily I say unto you, there were fears in your hearts, and verily this is the reason that ye did not receive. You know, Bryce, at BYU, Boy K. Packer gave a talk where he said to the group, they were, you know, it's obviously a group of college kids, and they're worried about finances and getting married and being adults. And he said, don't take counsel from your fears. And I actually wrote that in my scriptures. And because I'm a, I'm an Old Testament nerd, that's the story of Jeroboam. After the kingdom splits and Jeroboam's in the north, and he thinks, I don't have the temple. It's in Jerusalem. I'm going to build leave, one. They leave, they're not going to come back. Yeah. I'm going to lose my kingdom. I better build one. So he builds a, an altar in Dan Bethel, and it's all motivated on fear. And I thought, how easy is it for us in the world we live in to make decisions based on fear? And that's such a challenge because I think it's healthy. Fear does help us. It helps us avoid mistakes. So there's probably this this balance between fear and faith and going to the Lord, when we find that maybe a balance in contraries, but if all we do is pull on the thread of fear. If we're more concerned about the consequences that come from men yeah. than the consequences that come from God. I'm going to push that a little bit further. I really do think this is a bigger issue than I'm afraid to talk to my neighbor because you might reject me or you might mock me. I think this boils down to a very essential element of our our spiritual living. At the very culmination of King Benjamin's address in the Book of Mormon, he wanted them to learn one important lesson. The whole thing seems to be a culmination to this one lesson. He's illustrating it with himself being king and yet serving them. He talks about beggars. And so he's building up to this one crescendo. And then he says, here's the truth you need to believe. And then in verse 12, I'm in Mosiah chapter 4, verse 12. Now, don't read verse 11 yet. Verse 12, he says, if you do this, now we're going to define this in just a minute, the one thing he taught them in verse 11. But in verse 12, he says, if you do this, and then he gives this beautiful list of everything that will happen if we do this. First of all, he says, you'll always rejoice. 
You'll be filled with the love of God. You will always retain a remission of your sins. You'll grow in the knowledge of God. And then I love, so that's kind of the first commandment. If you do this, you will love God. Your relationship with God will be pure and flow. Now, verse 12 reflects my relationship with God, kind of that very first commandment to love God. If I do this, my relationship with God will be pure and clean, and it will be just flowing with blessings. Now, starting in verse 13, look at the consequences it will have on my neighbor, the second commandment. If you do this, verse 13, you won't have a mind to injure one another, but to live peacefully and to render every man according to that which is due. You will be a good person. You will be a good neighbor. You won't hurt people. You'll live peacefully and you'll render to everyone according to their due. And then within your own family, look at verse 14. So many people read Mosiah 4.14 as a commandment. It's not. It's a consequence. If you do this, you will not suffer your children to go hungry or naked, and you won't suffer that they transgress the laws of God or fight and quarrel one with another. See, people read that as a commandment. Parents, don't let your kids fight and quarrel. But King Benjamin is presenting it as a consequence. If you do this, you won't let your children fight and quarrel one with another. Verse 16, you will succor those that stand in need. You won't put away the beggar who petitions you. This seems to be the very essence of succeeding in this mortal existence, if you do this. So what is the this? You got to go back to verse 11. Again, I say unto you, as I have said before, that as you have come to the knowledge of the glory of God, or if you have known his goodness and have tasted of his love and received a remission of your sins, which causes such exceedingly joy in your souls, even so, here we go, I would that you should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness. There it is. There's the this. Always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness, and his goodness and long-suffering towards you, unworthy creatures, and humble yourselves even in the depths of humility and call on his name. That seems to be the secret to succeed in mortality. If you remember that God is great and that man is not, so this is more than missionary work. This is life. If people, if members of the church think men are great, that mankind is great, that Hollywood and all the glories of this world, if we get caught up in the pomp and the circumstance of the internet and the glories of mankind and forget the greatness of God, we're going to lose all the blessings we really want to receive. So when the Lord says to us, you're fearing men more than God, we really ought to perk up our ears and listen, because what he's saying is you're, you seem to be failing the test of mortality that leads to success. What are you doing to always retain in remembrance the greatness of God? Or are you vulnerable and susceptible to mixing those up and seeing the greatness of mankind and the nothingness of God? Some of these people are going to be so stretched to the point where they're willing to give up their reputation. Edward Partridge is going to be tarred and feathered and later spend time in jail and he's going to lose his property. He's going to live in a tent in Nauvoo for two years. And yet he came from wealth. And at the end of his life, property means nothing to him because of what you're talking about. Yeah. He gets it. If you have the attitude that manhood is great, then living in a tent is an injustice. How could I? How could you, God, well, it's do embarrassing, this to right? me? Because man is great and I'm supposed to be great. But if your attitude is that God is great and that he is so good and that everything he does is great, 
than temporarily living in a, in a tent while you feast upon the gift of the Holy Ghost within you is not a sacrifice. You know, Parley P. Pratt even writes about, he's so eloquent in his journals where he writes, sleep was a burden, eating was a burden. He just wanted the food that came from it's God. It's such a cool quote. Do you yeah. have that quote? I do. It's so good. <laughs> we'll make sure that gets in the, the show. Yo, it's so good. But I think there's a little bit more. As you read section 30 and you see that, don't fear man, fear God, help people see that this is a bigger picture. That remembering the greatness of God and the nothingness of man will lead to us naturally being in harmony with God and in harmony with human beings. We got to do 31 with Thomas B. Marsh. And this section is the Lord's instruction to Thomas. Thomas is 31 and he feels this prompting to go to New York. Now he's from Boston and he goes and he, and he's, he's going to New York. He hears word of a gold Bible. He makes its way, his way to E.B. Granin's print shop and he asks him about it. And they say, you know what? We just printed off this signature of 16 pages and he reads it and he takes it to Elizabeth and he says, this is it. Now his history is really complicated, but at the beginning, think about that. He reads 16 pages and he listens to the voice of the spirit. I had a conversation with a student the other day and we were talking about this. I had a couple students we were talking and one of them said, brother day, I just want all the evidence to line up. I want all the evidence of the restoration to, to fit perfectly. And another one of my students who has his engineering degree, he says to us, he says, I'm an engineer and in engineering, we kind of build a structure and we want it to fit in these parameters. And if it does, we're good. But this idea of exact, perfect truth in engineering is like, it's just kind of a myth. We're looking for, can it work within these parameters? And as we were talking about this, I thought, if we had to prove all evidences, think about the skill set you'd have to have. You'd have to be a historian and an archaeologist, and you would have to understand genetics. And and, and I don't think God— But in spite of that, if the Lord made the gospel so intellectually obvious, wouldn't he be taking away our agency? If he, If there was so much evidence that it seemed ridiculous to not accept it and believe it— he would be somehow taking agency away. Like compelling me. There has to be a little ambiguity. We have to be, according to Lehi, we have to be enticed by both sides, which I would suggest even the argument as to the evidence of God, his existence, and his restored church, the evidence has to entice us on both sides, which means neither side has proof that they are right and the other is wrong. There's enough ambiguity to know that I have to choose. I have agency and I have to choose. So 16 pages in. And he was in. And and I thought about that because I've met missionaries who've served in places where we don't even have the Book of Mormon translated in the language of the people that they taught. And so they would read it and then try to translate it and then ask them to pray about it and would come and tell me, hey, Brother Day, the Spirit still testifies to them that it's true. In other words, we have to learn how to listen to the Spirit. And even in the midst of messiness, messiness with history and all kinds of questions, and Thomas joins the church, and this section is the Lord's instruction to Thomas, hey, your family's going to live. I'm going to bless your little ones, it says. His kids are nine, seven, and three at the time. And in this message, and this is partly a challenge, hey, I want you to do this. This is also partly a warning, but this is also packaged to a young father. He's 31. But the point, the seed that I want to plant in your minds is this idea that Thomas does some great things. Now, we'll probably unpack more of this when we get to what we call the Mormon War. The Mormon War is going to take place in 1838. The Mormon War hasn't happened in Section 31. It's 1830. So Thomas is in good standing. But when the Mormon War happens, Thomas sees violence and he sees injustice on both sides of the conflict. He sees members of the church committing violence and non-members, and Thomas signs an affidavit a legal document that he gives to the governor of Missouri 
And that document gets the saints in a lot of trouble and a lot of things, negative things happen. And so in the show notes, because Bryce and I can't cover all things in this podcast, I send you to the show notes and I give you some really good links to some books that are excellent. Fire and Sword's my favorite. But if you're sitting here right now thinking, yeah, Mike, I'm not going to read like a 600 page book because I have a life. Hey, don't worry. We even link it to a video you can watch and you can just play it in your car, but don't watch the video, listen to it while you drive. But that video will really help you kind of get a feel for the world of Thomas B. Marsh. Because I think sometimes in the church, we simplify it and we package it and we tell the story of Elizabeth struggling with another sister over cream. And that historically did happen. But I don't think that's why Thomas struggles in 1838. I think that's one piece. But sometimes when we oversimplify history, we make caricatures out of people and we don't see them as real people. So I want to try and paint Thomas as a real person with, you know, flesh and blood. And he's, he's got these questions, but here in 1830, he's faithful. And I want to also end, he dies firm in the faith. He's actually buried in Ogden. So for a period of time from 1838 till 1857, almost 20 years of his life, he spends out of the church. Now that last chapter of his story is significant because after 20 years out, he comes hobbling to Salt Lake and he stands up to speak and he says, I do not know that I can make this vast congregation hear and understand me. My voice never was very strong. But it has been very much weakened of late years by the afflicting rod of Jehovah. He loved me too much to let me go without whipping. I have seen the hand of the Lord in the chastisement which I have received. I have seen and known that it has proved he loves me. For if he had not cared anything about me, he would not have taken me by the arm and given me such a shaking. If there are any among this people who should ever apostatize and do as I have done, prepare your backs for a good whipping, if you are such as the Lord loves. But if you will take my advice, now this is the Thomas B. Marsh, we really need to remember, if you will take my advice, you will stand by the authorities. But if you go away and the Lord loves you as much as he did me, he will whip you back again. So those last chapters are very significant. He comes back humbled. He's wondering why he went astray. He asks, He says that. He says, I have frequently wanted to know where my apostasy began. I've come to the conclusion that I must have lost the Spirit of the Lord out of my heart. The next question is, how and when did you lose the Spirit? He answers that question. I became jealous of the prophet. And then I saw double and overlooked everything that was right and spent all my time in looking for the evil. And then when the devil began to lead me, it was easy for the carnal mind to rise up, which is anger, jealousy, and wrath. I could feel it within me. I felt angry and wrathful, and the spirit of the Lord being gone, I was blinded. And I thought I saw a beam in Brother Joseph's eye, but it was nothing but a moat. But, but my own eye was filled with the beam. But I thought I saw a beam in his, and I wanted to get it out. And as Brother Heber says, I got mad, and I wanted everyone else to be mad. I talked with Brother Brigham and Brother Heber, and I wanted them to be mad like myself, and I saw that they were not mad, and I got madder still because they were not. Well, this is about the amount of my hypocrisy. Great man in the, in the confession of his soul. It takes humility. To say... It was me. I was proud, and here I am. I'm coming back, and I want to be accepted. So this week, as you get into Thomas B. Marsh, you just I think you need to know the last chapters of his life as well. The history is messy, and this is where I'm inviting you, the listener, to help me out. In our historical sources, some say that Sister Marsh, she's dead by 1854. And in our published church sources, and if you go to the Joe Smith papers, there's two different dates of her death, and there's a grave of a Elizabeth Godkin Marsh born on the same day, dying in 1878. Apparently, who was married to Thomas Marsh, who is buried in Santa Cruz, where I'm from, in, in, in 1878. When I was a kid, Bryce, we would go to Santa Cruz um, sometimes when we were supposed to be in school, <laughs> uh, but my mom forgave me. But uh, anyway... 
there's a lot of stories that say that once Sister Marsh dies, then he comes back. That doesn't line up if she dies in 1878. And these are questions I have. Did, did they get divorced? Like, what happened to Elizabeth? Like I said, the historical sources are contradictory. So as you go down what I call the Google highway, if you have time and you want to do this and you want to help me out, just know that you're going to find conflicting sources. And so just navigate that. And sometimes when I have a question like that and uh, and in my office, I have stuff stuck on the wall of questions and things that I'm wondering about. And so sometimes I'll just stick it on the wall and it'll be 10 years later and I'll get back to it. So if I don't have an answer now, I'm fine. But these are questions I have. What happened to Elizabeth? And another messy thing of history I, I just want to address, because in some of the historical accounts of Thomas, he gets major uh, disrespect because he doesn't look good or because he's poor. Or because he rose so high and, and then fell so low. Yes. And so here's my my big, and I have my arms stretched out again. This is me ch- trying to channel my Jesus in heaven who has this cosmic view of Thomas and you and me. Ask yourself this question. Does it really matter if he's poor or hobbling when he gets back, but he dies with his face pointed towards Zion? He dies humbly admitting what he did. Now, there might have been people there in that congregation that unanimously sustained him to be rebaptized who lost family members in Missouri. Think about that. Think about how hard that would be. And if you look at this from God's perspective, if he comes in broken, humble, and poor, better than not coming back. And so if this is his road, I guess my point is, if this is Thomas's road, who am I to judge his road? Now, granted, historically, it's rough. Eight, you know, 18 years out of the church, signing the affidavit, those things in Missouri are mess, messy and hard, but th- the Lord will sort it out. And so I just, I want to, with the best language I know how to speak, I just want to paint a, a merciful brush for Thomas. From God's perspective, I don't think it matters if he's poor. Anyway, that's a little bit on Thomas. So let's go back to section 31, the revelation given to Thomas when he comes in to meet with Joseph. And there, this is a classic example of applying the scriptures. When you are in the same circumstance as anyone who received a revelation, you can receive that revelation as if it were given to you because God speaks to the situation. So what's the situation Thomas B. Marsh is in? Verse 3, lift up your heart and rejoice, for the hour of your mission is come. God is not speaking just to Thomas B. Marsh, but to everyone at the hour of their mission. This is the same instructions. God gives the same blessing. And especially, look at verse 2, people who have had some affliction because of their family. If you have been concerned about going on a mission because what's going to happen to your family, if there's been some concerns, if you're worried about your family, then you need to understand that you're in Thomas B. Marsh's situation. And even if you're not necessarily concerned about your family, the hour of your mission has come. And so, therefore, you can take section 31, verse 5, as if President Nelson himself received a revelation for you which said, verse 5, thrust in your sickle with all your soul. Now, may I suggest then that every single missionary who thrusts in their sickle with their soul receives the same blessings promised in verse 5. Number one, your sins are forgiven you. That is your payment for service in his field. Missionaries who faithfully served come home with a clean slate. And that's a great gift from God. Number two, you will be laden with sheaves upon your back. I suspect this is very much in harmony with the promise in Matthew chapter 6 or 3 Nephi chapter 12 that says, if you put forth the kingdom of God, all these other things shall be taken care of. 
If you walk away from your studies at a university, if you walk away from the chance to get married and you go on a mission, all these other things shall be added unto you. You will be laden with sheaves. He will bless you in your temporal life. Doesn't mean riches and success necessarily, but the Lord will be with you and will laden you with many sheaves. And then the last blessing in verse 5, if you thrust in your sickle in my service, your family shall live. Blessings will be showered upon family members if you serve the Lord. And I would suggest that's not just your current family, but your future family. All of you out serving a mission who are worried about meeting an eternal companion, take this promise to heart. If you thrust in your sickle with all your soul, your future family shall live. Trust the Lord and His promises. And so there in section 31 is one of the great promises of serving a mission. I just want to throw out some of the others that are mentioned in these this week's Come Follow Me. Look at section 31, verse 11. If you will serve a mission, it shall be given you by the comforter what you shall do and whether you shall go. You are not alone, and he's going to be with you. He makes that same promise repeatedly. I love section 32 to Ziba Peterson in verse 3. He says, I myself will go with them and be in their midst, and I am their advocate with the Father, and nothing shall prevail against them. That's the promise. We've got to connect this wonderful verse in section 84. It's so similar to what he just said to Ziba Peterson. Section 84, verse 88, Whoso receiveth you, there I will be also. For I will go before your face. I will be on your right hand and on your left, and my spirit shall be in your hearts, and mine angels round about you to bear you up. Those are some of the wonderful blessings. Just a couple more that he mentions. I love verse or section 33, verse 8. Open your mouths and they shall be filled and you shall become even as Nephi of old. He repeats that you'll be laden with many sheaves for lo, I am with you. 8 and 9. Uh, just a couple more. Section 34. He says, prophesy, verse 10, and it shall be given by the power of the Holy Ghost. Verse 11, if you are faithful, behold, I am with you until I come. And then he says to Sidney Rigdon in section 35, verses 13 and 14, I call upon the weak things of the world, those who are unlearned and despised, to thresh the nations with the power of my hand. And then this wonderful verse, and to all you sweet missionaries out there, remember this, their arm shall be my arm and I will be their shield and their buckler, and I will gird up their loins, and they shall fight manfully for me, and their enemies shall be under their feet, and I will let fall the sword in their behalf, and by the fire of mine indignation will I preserve them. That was verse 14 of section 35. I like to think of missionaries with an unseen shield, like Elisha said to his servant, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. I believe, parents, as you send those children out into the mission field, they are shielded. There is a shield and a buckler protecting them. Now, that doesn't mean that the process doesn't require and allow for a little sacrifice. And sometimes we get marred, but the Lord will be with us. Hey, if I went way too fast and you wanted to write these down and send them to a missionary, let me go back over that list. The promise to Thomas B. Marsh that if you thrust in your sickle, your sins will be forgiven is 31.5. And then 31.11, I will give unto you the comforter and it will tell you where to go and what to do. 32 verse 3 is I will be, I myself will be with them in their midst. I will be their advocate. 33 verse 8, open your mouth and it will fill, I will fill it. 34 verse 10, 
therefore prophesy, and it shall be given by the Holy Ghost. Verse 11, if you are faithful, I am with you until I come. And then 35, verse 14, their arm shall be my arm. I will be their shield and their buckler. And then we threw in section 84, verse 88, that I will go before your face. I will be on your left hand and on your right, and my spirit shall be in your heart to bear you up. I just, as I read the Doctrine and Covenants, I just hear the tender voice of the Lord blessing his missionaries. In fact, let me take you back to section set 34. I love that he says in section four to Orson Pratt, he says, verse four, blessed are you because you have believed. More blessed are you because you were called of me to preach my gospel. I think the Lord has such tender feelings for those who preach his gospel. As I read the scriptures, I just feel his love for them and his desire to bless and protect them. So, wonderful thread that flows throughout this week's Come Follow Me is the blessings that the Lord pours out for missionaries. Those promises in those verses, we'll put those in the show notes if you want to just put that in your scriptures or write those down. Uh, as Bryce was talking, I was just really enjoying hearing him make these connections and seeing the tender voice of the Lord to these servants. Edward Partridge is an individual we're going to talk about later because his sufferings and the things that he gives up for the gospel, to me, he's very much in the spirit of the Knight family. And so is his wife, Lydia, and they're wonderful saints. And in section 36, the Lord tells him, hey, go preach my gospel. That's verse one. And then verse three, you'll declare it with a, with a loud voice. And then the promises that Bryce talked about are very similar if you want to read a really good article, there's one out there by Dean Jesse. And so we'll just put it in the show notes. It's called Steadfastness and Patient Endurance because there's so much happening with just Edward and Lydia. Now, in Dean Jesse's article, he's going to go down the roads of the children and some of the messiness of history that we won't have time to do in this podcast. And in the future, we'll talk about him. We'll also talk more about Sidney Rigdon and also Orson Pratt. These are really big pillars in church history. And so sometimes understanding their life helps us to see how the Lord's working through them. And I really appreciate also, as Bryce has talked about, how can we apply this? Like section 31, if I'm in a similar circumstance where I'm called on a mission, I should read section 31. That's really good stuff. Note the blessings and note the response. Notice what he's asking me to do, because this section was given to you. Anyone whose hour of their mission has come can accept section 31 as a very personal section. Sometimes in the Lord's kingdom, the value of the journey isn't the product. It's the process of what happens along the way. You haven't failed because the product was less than you dreamed it would be. Oliver Granger when he shall fail, he shall rise again, for his sacrifice shall be more sacred to me than his increase. I think those are some really important lessons. And all of us, we're all in different circumstances. I got to tell you, the first time I had to teach these sections, it was a little bit overwhelming. And so hopefully we've illustrated some of these ideas. I like to look at their complexity and see them as real people. And sometimes I like to talk about them as if they're with us. Because I think if we, if we view them that way, and we see their humanity, I also think we also learn a little bit about the Savior, because that's how He sees you. He sees you in all your complexity, and He loves you. And with that, we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.